weekday mornings from 10 till 12. This is KCLR Live. Good morning. You're very, very welcome along to KCLR Live with Una Neve Wildonic. Lots to get through and chat about between now and 12 o'clock. But at 10 o'clock, we'll head to Ashling for this hour's news. It's been driving you all crazy. The guesses have been pouring in and yesterday we finally had a winner. I had to send it to a steward's inquiry because we weren't quite sure that the wording was what we were looking for, but it turns out it was. So we're going to just play this for you one more time before we put you out of your misery in the next hour by telling you what it was and who's won the money. The Volkswagen ID Sound on KCLR. With thanks to the ID range of electric vehicles at La Hearts Volkswagen Kilkenny. Visit laharts.ie. The Volkswagen ID Sound on KCLR. With thanks to the ID range of electric vehicles at La Hearts Volkswagen Kilkenny. Visit laharts.ie. That's it, just another hour to wreck your heads while you mull over that one and we'll announce what it was and who's won the money with thanks to our friends in La Hearts. 500 euro coming your way, so keep tuned to find out who's won who's won the cash. Now, I was lucky enough to receive a copy of a really beautiful book called Night Music by Fergus Cronin and I'm just going to share with you the Irish Times review of this book. It says, it's an impressive collection by a very talented writer. The surprising thing about it is that it's a debut. Although the author is not young... What has he been doing all his life? Still better late than never. Fergus Cronin, good morning. What have you been doing morning, all your life? Tell us. I beg your pardon, Una. What have you been doing all your life before you started writing? Well, well I spent a lot of it in Kilkenny. Um, uh, very fruitfully, I have to say. Um, Kilkenny, uh, I was in Kilkenny. I lived in Kilkenny for uh, about 20, over 25 years. And um, before that, I'd had a... Um, I, I was born in Dublin, grew up in Dublin, and um, studied in Dublin, worked uh, for a while in Dublin, and then went to Kilkenny. So uh, I only left Kilkenny uh, just over 10 years ago. Um, and, so and you were busy, I, as you say, when you were in Kilkenny. There's a long list of things above. that you were involved with, Fergus. Would you like to share any of the highlights of your time here with us in Kilkenny? Of course. Well, there, I mean, the big highlight, I worked in a wonderful company there. It was originally known as Mahon and McPhillips, then became Bowen Water Technology, and it's currently Veolia uh, Water. Um, I, I was very lucky to uh, land a job there. Um, I met some wonderful people, worked with some wonderful people. I, I, I have a training as an engineer. I have a degree in chemical engineering. So I, I worked there. came a bit late to chemical engineering because I'd spent a bit of time in uh, theatre and various other jobs uh, before I arrived in Kilkenny. But, um, yeah, I, I, I worked with that company for 25 years and, and again, was extremely lucky to end up as the CEO uh, of the company through its transitions from uh, Mad Bay Phillips to Bowen and from Bowen to Veolia. And um, I worked for Veolia for five years and then felt it was time to move on. To and move uh, on. So I, I left there. But I mean, uh, alongside that, I had a very, very interesting and, and, and uh, rewarding life in Kilkenny uh, in, a, in many facets, in, in all aspects of life in Kilkenny. 
and uh, met some great people there. It's a wonderful place, isn't it? It is uh, a wonderful uh, place. We're, we're proud of it. But I know you were involved, Fergus, with the Kilkenny School Project, with Kidco, lots of really interesting projects that you were very deeply involved with. But the arts has always has also formed a huge part of your, your life in Kilkenny, hasn't it? It has, yeah. I mean, I, I, I was involved in, in, in the art scene in Dublin. When I say the art scene, uh, I think that's not a great word, but I was involved in um, a, a number of theatre projects in Dublin before I ever arrived in Kilkenny, and I worked full-time at it in the 70s for a while. Uh, so I, I go, going back through the years, uh, when I, started, I started reading quite late. I started reading my late teens. Uh, from, from that moment on, I had a, a love for uh, literature and theatre, particularly theatre. So I had a bit of experience coming to Kilkenny, but it was trying to roll up the sleeves and, and I was raising a family work at, at my engineering. And um, But but I always kept a, uh, shall we say, a one foot in the arts uh, through various means. I worked with some uh, local theatre people there. Jeff Rose, I remember in particular, wonderful man who uh, produced and directed quite a large number of plays. I hope he's got the credit for what he did for theatre in Kilkenny. Uh, so I worked with Jeff, uh, not in, the, in any of the companies in Kilkenny, we had our own little company for a while. Uh, so I always managed to keep my hand in, and um, I met met a man in Kilkenny who came there with a company called Bickerstaff Theatre Company, Richard Cook, uh, who went on to found the Cat Laughs Festival, um, and various other things like subtitle and uh, works with, with David McWilliams on uh, Kirkonomics. But I, I, I met Richard at a very early stage and uh, I used my kind of position or influence, whatever I had in Kilkenny, to help him. And um, we have had a lifelong, uh, well, uh, not lifelong, but we've had a relationship ever since. I, I still work with Richard uh, on, on new projects and um, we've done quite a lot of work together. Uh, well, you've, so, been, you've uh, certainly been busy, Fergus, but can I just go back to your theatre work for a moment? Was your involvement yeah. writing? Was it performing? Was it a little bit of both? It was performing, um, performing. And um, I, I did... Um, I did a, uh, with Jeff, we did uh, Brian Freed's Faith Theatre, we did uh, Pinter's Betrayal, um, and there, there was an element of monologue in a lot of the work I did. I ultimately did Crap's Last Tape in Kilkenny after I left. I went back about 10 years ago with, with a friend of mine, Art O'Brien, a very good theatre director, and we did a version of uh, Crap's Last Tape for Kilkenny Arts Fest, so we did it in Galway Arts Festival too. Uh, so a lot of the a lot of the theatre work I had experienced was kind of monologue theatre, uh, what, what I'd call it, you know. So uh, I was interested in text, but I was performing. Yeah. So I, is I, that I, where your your interest in writing ultimately came from? The monologue, the text in front of you, trying to work that. Is that where it was born? This new phase of your career as a writer. Well, well, it's helped it along the way. I mean, my, my, my interest in writing comes from reading, as everybody should. I think every writer should read extensively. And I was lucky to be able to read uh, quite a lot. Um, uh, once, I, once I started, I, I, I read extensively. Uh, but when I was working at Kenny, I hadn't time to write anything down. <laughs> you, you get your thoughts, you can express them verbally, but the next stage is to write them down, uh, or write down uh, the notions or stories. But yes, the, the, the involvement in theatre always kept me sh- kind of sharp in that way. You know, I was, I was reading other people's work uh, quite a lot and, um, and, and performing it. And 
I've done quite a lot of readings as well. Of um, I've read all Joyce's stories for the Dublin City One book. I read them publicly uh, at the invitation of the Dublin City One book. That's since I left Kilkenny. I've read uh, 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 Plunkett's Trumpet City. I've read that publicly. I've read a lot of stuff, a lot of writers publicly as a sort of performance. But um, but the main interest in writing definitely will come from reading. You know, from reading quite and reading good stuff. And Fergus, you stored up all those ideas that you were gathering over the years. And as the Irish Times Review said, you you did come relatively late to actually the game of getting something published. How did you keep those ideas fresh? Were you noting them or were they just in the back of your mind somewhere ready to be unleashed? Well, well, some notes, but mostly by... uh, indulging in some reveries I suppose daydreaming <laughs> maybe I shouldn't be saying that when I'd be working but I'd, I'd, I'd almost find some stage during the day a time to let my mind wander into into the nature of a story I did a lot when I was going to sleep at night I, I, I let my mind wander into the realms of a story uh, knowing I wouldn't have time to sit down and do the hard work and it is hard work writing you know uh, and it requires a lot of concentration and a lot of rewriting and rewriting and a lot of effort uh, so I knew I wasn't going to be able to do that so I, I just kept them stirring you know and um, just kept the imagination working that way and um, and it, in, in a funny kind of way it helped me at work as well because I think when you're focused on something uh, it's very useful to be able to stand back and cast your mind laterally and think maybe slightly outside the box and I did that. I brought a lot of that to my work, I hope. I hope my colleagues would excuse me for that and appreciate it because, um, you know, I, I, I wasn't stuck in a, in, in, a, in, in a particular kind of, you know, we'd say rot as regards uh, the way I perform my duties. Um, and my duties uh, in, 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 in working to kind of work to other people, you know, it was, it was looking... I, I I was very reward, well rewarded myself, and I make no make no bones about that. But but the duty of, of a leader of a company is to mind other people and look after their careers, and um, and um, so it's it's good to bring other dimensions to that. I think you know, kind of a an empathy for the human, and um, and I think that's part of writing as well. Yeah. Well, it's so. so different, I suppose, because you originally studied engineering and dare I say, we wouldn't really associate engineers with literature. So I guess you were fulfilling that creative urge in yourself by percolating those ideas over the years. Um, Fergus, I'm going to come yes. to your book, which, as I said, is very beautiful. It's gotten really amazing reviews. I'm sure you're thrilled with those. It's been described as funny, sad, sublime, witty, clever. Your characters are being described as quirky with witty, clever and unreliable voices. And I'm going to take our listeners to one of the stories. It's a collection of short stories and one of them is called The The Woman on the Bus. And the story starts referencing a a local radio station saying it's always there in the background when I'm in the house. I rang in once but hung up before they answered. It was a thing that I was going to say about what started on the bus but on second thoughts no sure if there was someone listening dot 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 and I thought that would resonate with a lot of our listeners this morning but I wanted to ask you what attracted you to the short story because I think that is considered quite difficult. It looks a bit easier than it probably is. Yes, I mean, well, there are various various sort of um, 
uh, models or you know shapes that short stories come in, and and there's lots of theory around it. I suppose that the academics indulge in. Um, my my interest in short stories uh, springs from my absolute love of Chekhov and um, Maupassant and Turgenev. They're all 19, 19th century writers. I thought they wrote wonderful stories, particularly the Russians. And then I <coughs> I, I also love uh, American short story writers. And, and all those short story writers write from countries that have very large landscape uh, and very large history, you know. Uh, well, Americans maybe not so much. They have a different kind of history, but the Russians particularly. So th there was a great wealth of knowledge and uh, I suppose truth in the stories about life and so that that's where my that's where my that's where I go when I when I want to refresh my own uh, thinking but the the choice of the short story as a medium for myself uh, I think sprang from the notion that when I did sit down to write I had so many uh, kind of half-formed ideas that they wouldn't all fit in any other form of writing, like a novel. Now, poetry maybe, but I wouldn't be a good poet uh, uh, at this or at at the stage of my life. I started to write. I might be able to indulge in some of the future, but I, I I just focused on that because it gave me more variety to deal with, and uh, I could get down a lot more ideas. I think a novel is a different thing. I think there's ideas in a novel, of course, but it's 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 a little bit singular. And um, there's loads of novels I'd like to write, but uh, I, I, I start writing the short story first. If, and some of the short stories I've written, I've had to abandon because they possibly are uh, the basis of novels, you know? They, they were getting too big. Okay. Um, but I, I, I just worked on the short story and... and uh, it, it, they took shape and I keep writing them and I've loads written <laughs> and, and, and I'm very lucky to have the collection believe me. You well know. you're very talented I think Fergus is, is the reason you have the collection but it's interesting you mentioned poetry because that struck me when I was reading some of the stories. What I thought was very mature if I can use that word and accomplished in your writing was the bravery in leaving so much unsaid in some of the stories which I often find with poetry I'm not entirely sure what the writer wanted to say so a little bit of it I have to make up if you like in in my head how comfortable do you feel about that the idea that the the reader may not quite get where you were coming from in a way I think it's essential um, as a writer it's part of getting out of the way you, you've got to get yourself out of the way uh, when you're writing um, like there, there'll be elements very small elements of those stories which I would have experienced directly in life, but um, the, the 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 hardest work is trying to remove yourself, get get yourself out of the way. And a lot of people, when they write, make the mistake of putting themselves in the way. It's about what they they're thinking. You know, you've got to create a voice that, you know, of course, is your own, but is also a little bit universal. You know, and I think part of the way of making things universal is to leave a lot of space for people's thinking. I mean. I, I understand what it is to be a reader, and therefore, when I read, I want to use my own imagination. I, I want the writer to provoke that, of course, and create a context for it and make me interested. But I want to I want to be able to use my own imagination when I'm reading, and I think that that's the way I try and write. I mean, some of those stories, in fact, most stories I write have some sort of an issue or something in them, you know, and. Um, 
I don't want to 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 uh, be a in any way uh, preaching about anything, but I want to create the room for somebody else to enter in there and make their own mind up about what might be happening here. You know, so I think probably a lot of that does come from the fact that I have a good bit of experience in the world. You know, I kind of. I think I know when to leave the gaps. <laughs> but, yeah, but it takes bravery, I think. And we won't do any spoiler alerts here, but at another stage, Fergus, I, I want to know exactly where you were going with some of those stories just to see if my head was working in line with yours or not. Sure. Um, sure. You mentioned that, you know, your, your real life experience obviously feeds into a lot of your stories. And what I, what I thought was quite striking was the theme of death, which made an appearance in... I think the vast majority of the 14 stories and, and also I think loneliness comes into quite a few, the loneliness of some of the characters. Would you like to speak a little bit to either of those themes? Yeah, uh, I, I, a very good friend of mine uh, over the West of Ireland said to me a few years ago, uh, she was aware that I was writing and she said, um, and I knew there was a collection coming in. Collections take a while to, to get published, and I, I kind of knew it quite some time ago that it was going to be published. Um, and I have a lot more stories than are, are published, uh, you know, the, that's a selection of stories. And she asked me, what, what are they about? And I hadn't thought about it much before, and I immediately answered, death, I said, they're about death. And she said, oh, it's very, very dark. And I said, but they're, they're not all dark stories when I when I reflected further on it. You know, there's a lot of humor. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, all, all, all other aspects of life dealt with. And I, I think in a sense that death and our ability to look it straight in the face uh, is quite important, and it's quite important to art. I, I, I think somebody said to me once that all art is about death. I don't think that's actually true, but ultimately, um, we we have to understand that you know the biggest thing about human life is the degree of finiteness. But you know, mm-hmm. so I think if we can't write about that, where. Where we're, we're, we're not right. So, yes, there are. I mean, there's all sorts of kinds of deaths. Uh, I don't, in, in some cases, they are, in one or two cases, they are pretty central to the story. In other cases, they're quite gentle ways of just letting a life kind of conclude, you know? And, and actually, um, in the very first story, All That Jazz, I think when the death enters the story, it it, 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 it brings a very positive sort of a, a tie-up of... of the grappling that was going on and sort of the, 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 the angst that you can sense from the characters. So in that sense, it was very positive. It's not necessarily a, a negative end to a story or a sad end to a story. Fergus, yeah, yeah. I know you spent uh, a long time, 25 years living in Kilkenny and you're coming back to us for the Kilkenny Arts Festival. You'll be reading with musician Kevin Doherty and Kevin joins us on the line. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning. How are you? Greetings from Donegal. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, you for joining us. Gentlemen. How are you, Kevin? <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, it's okay, Fergus. I'm undercover here. I'm undercover. <laughs> I know, yeah. Is there somebody making tea for you, or uh, are you on your own? <clears throat> no, I made my own tea. You're getting washed out. Oh. Which you, you could use the rainwater, I gather, Kevin. Listen, I want to commend you. I was listening to the interview. That was really interesting. 
um, interview there with Fergus. Well, you're you're now part of it, so welcome aboard, Kevin. I wanted to ask you, gentlemen, where did your uh, collaboration come from? Because, or would you like to maybe tell us a little bit about what we might expect from the Parade Tower on the 13th of August at 6 p.m.? What's going to happen when you two join forces? <laughs> Well, uh, um, that's that. that uh, all I can say is that it should be interesting. Um, this uh, this collaboration uh, came about for me as as an invitation from Fergus to 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 get involved. Um, uh, I, we've we met several years ago. We met at a wedding uh, in France, and um, I'm just glad that no, neither of us caught the bouquet. <laughs> It could have been trouble, but, but, but Fergus, I, I mean, I've just I've I've enjoyed, you know, many conversations, um, uh, very easy conversations with Fergus over the last few years, and he um, he invited me to to join him for this project, and uh, it's something that I'm really looking forward to doing because having read the book, I realised that the, there was very strong connections with the way I feel, and how my music operates and what. Fergus has done in, in his collection. So it was a very um, easy, I suppose, collaboration in that sense. How would you describe your own music, um, Kevin, and, and who influenced you? Well, again, the, the connection with the book became very apparent because my, my music, you know, uh, as a lot of people, I mean, I didn't come from any sort of music tradition or music family. It was something that I was felt compelled uh, to to do it, it started for me very simply with um, I, I was babysitting here in Bunkrana and um, I I was bored off my head and I couldn't figure out there was a chess machine in the, in the house and I couldn't figure that out and I started looking through records and there was a Bob Dylan record there and I put it on and I, it was a, an album called More Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits famous this blue cover and I put it on and the first track was a song called Watching the River Flow. And it really, it, it scared me witless and I took the needle off the record again because I'd never heard anything quite like it. And it ran through my entire body. And, and even then, I was about 16. And I remember saying to myself that if I put the needle back down in this record, that things are going to change. So I did. I put the needle down and that was it. The doors flew open and away I went. And uh, it took me, you know, in those in those days, it sounds terrible, it's true. In those days, you know, your, your education came from records and finding records and gleaning records. So I used to bring in lists into school and uh, I would get the other people in the class if their parents had any of these records because you'd read the back of the of, of the album and it could mention Muddy Waters or John Lee Hooker or, you know, Mississippi John Hurt or Hank Williams or Ernest Tubbs. So that's where you had to find out who these people were. So, so, so my interest really did. Uh, initially, it was very much American country blues music, folk music. I, I think so what you described there, the Bob Dylan moment, if I could call it that, is the dream for many people that you're called to something so strongly, and and there your journey began. I think that's a beautiful way to find what you're meant to do, Kevin. Well, you know, it's it's true. I mean, it sounds bizarre, but it's true. My whole body. Tingled. I can still remember it, and I remember distinctly thinking to myself that things were going to change because I, I was brought up. Uh, actually, my father was a professional golfer, so I was brought up on a golf course. So that was my intended. I I should have been going to Mount Juliet, not to, 
Kilkenny um, <laughs> festival. But but I, I just the minute I heard that music and all that music was open to me, I started to you know I could remember then why I was sort of drawn to certain music growing up as a kid. You know, Slim Whitman or, or Hank Williams or you know, uh, uh, and I knew that there was nothing going to nothing was going to get in my way then. That's gorgeous. Musically. Fergus, did you have a similar moment in your life ever? Was it a slower burn? Well, well, I, I think when, I, when I, the, the yeah the biggest literary event of my life was when a, a very good friend of mine who now lives up in Leitrim uh, handed me a copy of uh, Turgenev's Fathers and Sons, and I read that book like, and my mind was blown open uh, to the world, you know. So uh, that that would be my sort of literary starting point. Um, yeah, so I, I got excited. I, I can't say my, my body tingled because maybe uh, I wasn't in sort of tingling mode at the time, but something something <laughs> happened. Yeah, something happened. And just to say, uh, you know, listening to Kevin's music, um, um, and when, when, I, when I heard him playing, I, I think for the first time that day at the wedding, you know, he had an effect on me. Just there's a quality in Kevin's voice and the way he accompanies it musically that is quite is quite, a, I suppose, exciting. You know, so, I agree. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so, um, you know, in, in in a kind of an intellectual way, Kevin's very modest about his achievements. You know, he's he's uh, he's 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 a man of 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 many talents, and he he is um, currently. Deeply engaged in literary studies, and I, I just um, stand back in awe and amazement of what the man is taking on. So, um, I just want to say that publicly because uh, he's a brilliant guy. Yeah. Well, listen, neither of you caught the bouquet at that wedding, but it does sound like a marriage made in heaven. This collaboration, well, just yeah. And I tell, I tell you another thing. I'm not sorry for for no problem. I, I was just because this morning I've been sort of I've, I've notebooks all around the place and I've been sort of drawing them down into, into one one central uh, central area and it, it's been a quite an interesting thing Fergus reading the book and reading I, I, I was never really a short story reader um, but it's flicked a switch in me because I, I realised you know a, a bit like what Fergus was talking about earlier on about getting out of your own way uh, to allow the, the thing to happen I started writing a lot of songs based on, you know, or kick-started by reading um, the stories because I realised it's okay to mix stuff up. You know, that that every song doesn't have to be some, some part of an excavation of yourself. You know, that you can mix stuff up, which is which I find has been really liberating. So Fergus has liberated me. Well, gentlemen, we look forward to um, hearing you both uh, read from... Fergus's book which is Night Music and hearing your fabulous tunes or songs Kevin we're actually going to play a little bit of something that I found on YouTube which I thought was absolutely beautiful it is you playing live at Bangor Castle and this is Esplendido Corazon I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that but it's Splendid Heart and it's beautiful gentlemen good morning good morning thanks Una see you Kevin Well, the ferry boat is rising and falling like a sled. KCL or-
Store Live. With thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre Carlo, with a fantastic range of shops, food outlets and a state-of-the-art IMC cinema. See fairgreen.ie. Carlo, Kilkenny, KCLR. The Road Safety Authority report that over half of child car seats are incorrectly fitted. I'm joined on the line by Ron Richardson, who is lead checker with the RSA. Good morning, Ron. Good morning, Una. How are you doing? Not too bad. We, we, this comes up a lot, doesn't it, that parents are, for whatever reason, I'm sure unwittingly in, in every single case, incorrectly fitting their, their car seats. Do you think that we've gotten any better at this or, 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 or why is this problem so consistently being highlighted? Well, this, oh, that's sort of a loaded question. It's a very, very good question. But it's a sort of... It, over. Yes, the answer to um, part of that question is that over the years that we've been on the road now, we've been on the road now about 11 years doing the live checks all over the country. And definitely what we have seen um, is a, an improvement in how seats are fitted. And I sort of think the reasons for that are because um, I suppose 11... 15 years ago a lot of seats were belt fitted and that can be problematic in itself so now new cars um, have these isofix systems they're bars where the seat can click in uh, the seat goes green it tells you or it beeps um, there's a green or red indicator that tells you whether it's fitted or not and so statistically they're easier to use and easier to fix into the car so there's less likelihood of you making a mistake fitted whereas Belt fitted seats tend to be a little bit more problematic. It's I sort of it's like um, I sort of liken it to IKEA furniture. I always have bits left over. It's the instructions can be quite difficult in some cases, you know. But so it's sort of like that. It's trying to understand the instructions, particularly if they're belt fitted. And one of the things that I think happens is that there's a multi-purpose unit. So you're taking out the seat and putting it onto a buggy, which makes great financial sense. But I suppose the the consequence is that you're putting it in and out a lot and the possibility or the likelihood of not fitting it correctly increases. Well, actually, I started thinking that area, that's probably where the biggest improvement has happened. Because if if a young mum has... A newborn baby, and it's typical season, what we call an infant carrier, and it comes with a travel system, a pram or buggy, is that they'll get a base with that, and that can click on and off. And again, it gets back to these ice fix systems where they just click on, they go green, so you're good to go. And it's it's a practical thing in terms of you know that first year home, you're you're clicking it on, putting it onto a pram. It's it's when it gets on to the next stage is where we find more of the issues. And I know you're running these uh, walk-in services. Do you want to tell us a little bit about those? And then we might ask you, have you any other tips to give us before those checks um, happen? Sure. Um, so next we're, next week we're in, uh, obviously, in Kilkenny, Carlow. The good people come out in their throngs in um, that count, those counties. So uh, next Tuesday, the 8th of August, we're in, outside Super Value in Thomastown, Kilkenny. The next day, the 9th of August, we're uh, outside Baby Boom. There's a car park beside the Baby Boom shop in uh, Upper Patrick Street in Kilkenny City. And then uh, we're over to Fairgreen Shopping Centre in Carlow on um, Thursday, the 10th of August in Barrack Street. Um, you asked about tips. I just, just to let you know that, um, just before I t- uh, give you some tips, the, to let people know that they don't have to make an appointment. You just rock up and if there's a space, just drive into the gazebos. If there's a bit of a queuing system, we have a list. Um, but uh, it, and it's free. It's a public service. Um, 
to everyone right across the country, grandparents alike, childminders, guardians, whatever. So there's no, and there's no judgment. There's nobody going to be um, giving penalty points or uh, c- c- casting any aspersions on anyone. It's we, literally the team. We have one focus in mind. That's the child. Okay, and you're there from 10 um, it, till 5.30 on the dates you uh, mentioned in those locations. And how long does uh, it take? Uh, yeah. It can take um, it can take five minutes. It can take ten minutes. Sometimes, if it takes longer, we've discovered that there's a problem, but that we can fix it. And so it might take a little bit longer. A lot of people come in and they're having a third child, and that that can take a little bit longer to go through sort of options and the cards and stuff like that. So um, it's just it, it's an important um, it's an important service for people. They should avail of it. I mean, when we like almost sixty percent of what we see is incorrectly fitted, and thirty percent of that are what we describe as a major fault which is where the seat won't perform under crash forces um, and and that can be a multitude of issues so uh, I would urge people to come and see us you, you were talking about tips there a few seconds ago and I, I know we're under time pressure okay, but so but if you don't have the fancy light indicator what would be a good sort of way to just check in with yourself and see if you are correctly fitting the seat well, so there's, there's, yeah, there's two things I would say there number one is there's always information out there and it's getting better and better so we, we run during COVID like everybody we ran um, a virtual service and when we came back on the road we decided to keep that going so you can actually go on to our website and uh, rsa.ie forward slash check fits and you can actually book a, a virtual appointment and myself and the team will contact you and do either a voice call if it's just questions you want to ask or if it's um, if it's a, if you want to bring the camera out to the car, we'll check the seat. We'll check the seat that way as well. And also, last year we launched a code of practice for retailers. And on our website, you'll see a list of uh, the retailers who have signed up. To, we laid out a set of standards by which, if you sell a car seat, here's a set of standards um, that you must adhere to. So we did. We advise that you go to the code of practice retailers because like we know that a lot of the problems we've seen over the years some some of the problems not all the problems but uh, are very bentable at the point of purchase so that was an area that we wanted to focus on the last couple of years so we've laid out this set of standards Okay and I'll just direct maybe our listeners as well to your website rsa.ie forward slash check it fits if they want to go back over those dates yep. so Kilkenny Carl free check it fits uh, August 8th 9th and 10th and you can double check those locations on the website Ron Richardson of the RSA thank you very much KCL or live with thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre Carlo with a fantastic range of shops, food outlets, and a state of the art IMC cinema. See fairgreen.ie. Carlo, Kilkenny, KCLR. Welcome back. Now we're joined as we always are on a Tuesday by Jerry Farrell of Castleview Financial Services. Good morning, Jerry. Hey, Una. Good morning. Good morning to the listeners. Did you get in trouble when you went home last week talking about your running away money? Uh, no, I didn't actually, and and my wife works uh, sort of hybrid model. So a few days in the office, a few days at home. I think Tuesdays are in the office. So okay, that's that was a lucky one for me. <laughs> I don't think that's any accident, Jerry. You might have been quite so willing to speak <laughs> about the financial infidelity if she were at home that day. Listen, today we are talking about a new car insurance provider on the market. Yeah, so this is really really interesting, and we all went, you know, often. When we, when we talk about these things, it's about trying to disrupt the market, maybe shake the market up a little bit. Um, and so Revolut are entering the Irish market on the car insurance side. Now, this was signalled, I think, back in February, March of this year, Una. And it's 
it's a it's a limited entry initially before they roll it out uh, more broadly across the Irish market. But they've done it uh, in other markets. And, and if we understand what Revolut are about, so they're a fintech, so they're not quite a bank and they're not quite just a financial services provider. They're somewhere in between. Uh, and their raison d'etre, they, they say, is to be the Amazon of banking. And part of that is to look at, I guess, at the most lucrative or financially rewarding sections of banking or financial services and insurance and car insurance is definitely one of those, Una. Okay, and are they competitive where they have rolled this out elsewhere? Yes, they are. So I took a quick look at what they've done in the UK in this space and it looks like what they're looking, they're trying to do the same here and I've no reason why, uh, there's no reason why they're not going to be successful in that space because we should all be looking at costs, obviously, in these challenging financial times. Uh, and one of the things they do is uh, they're leveraging costs. Uh, sorry, they're partnering firstly with AIG, who are um, the, who are the underwriters of, of the scheme for the car insurance for Revolut, which is pretty good. Um, and they're offering discounts to existing or new Revolut uh, cardholders. Now, I'm not here to be a proponent necessarily of Revolut. I just want to spell it out to people that uh, there will be another option available and they're saying, Revolut are saying that they could be up to 30% cheaper, Una, for the um, for the policyholder on an annualised basis. And some of, when you get in behind how they might be 30% cheaper, so um, really if you've signed up to, they have a number of different uh, plans Revolut have if you've signed up a paid plan to one of their paid plans you're going to get a reduction on your car insurance most likely if you pay your insurance upfront at the start for the whole 12 months Revolut are, are going to give you uh, a reduction in terms of the premium so so there are uh, ways and means to take a look at it but any entrant into a market that's uh, 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 such as car insurance makes it more competitive and, and the reason they're choosing car insurance in Ireland I think is because it's a very lucrative business to be in from a commission's perspective for the provider so and it so makes know, perfect sense But Jerry, what you're describing there sounds to me like a collaboration between Revolut and AIG so are they really a new entrant into the market or is it just let's hitch our, our trailer to one another and off we go? Uh, and and much much of banking and and financial services is about that. I mean, if we look at the high street and we look at our traditional banks, and we look at insurance through our tr- traditional banks, such as um, home and uh, not so much home insurance, maybe life insurance, or we look at pensions, or we look at savings plans. Every one of our banks, with the exception of Bank of Ireland on the high street, have hitched themselves to Irish life in terms of the provision of those types of services Mm. and the only other one is Bank of Ireland and they're hitched to New Ireland so it's not a new phenomenon Uh, it's about uh, I guess cost reductions I suppose in in one sense Una and if you take Revolut as not a high street presence not a physical bank it's a fintech um, uh, so it's it's uh, it's on the app it's your your metal card it's it's online um it makes perfect sense to them that they go to a traditional provider of insurance to underwrite the scheme that they're looking to do for Irish car insurance uh, 
insur- Irish people who are looking for car insurance. Okay, so we wait and see what has what what will happen and whether it's good news. I just want to save a few quid. That's all I'm interested in. So if they can do that for me, I'm on board for that. Yeah, and I think most of us are the same. And so, and actually, we are, and evidence have shown has shown Una that we are. Uh, more now than ever before shopping around so it makes perfect sense to shop around in this space but also in something that's just come to as we're talking about that so many listeners um, will have fixed their mortgage rate over the last two three four years they're likely going to be coming to the end of that fixed rate period if they fixed it for a short period of time Una so uh, and as we know, interest rates have continued to rise over the last 18 months or so and are likely, we're likely to see at least one, perhaps two more rate rises. So the challenge will be for those people coming off those fixed mortgages to spend a little bit of time, to take a bit of time out uh, and, and spend some time researching the market to find the best rate possible for themselves mm. to save themselves literally hundreds of euro a year. And actually, the Irish Daily Mail, dramatic as they like to be, have a heading today say, saying fix now or lose a fortune, talking about the fact that with the rates, as you said, uh, set to rise, you need to go in now or face a very sudden uh, payment increase. And I spoke about that a little last week with um, Dara from Bonkers.ie, that there it's always worth, I suppose, opening up the conversation and seeing where it can go and being aware of what at least is out there in terms of options. Uh, when it comes to your mortgage, particularly, yes, it, do, it yes it is, and it does, and 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 some some of the key uh, metrics I think that sit behind us are, are, are as we try and look through our crystal ball, Una, um, are to say that remember the medium to long term strategy of the European Central Bank remains that inflation, uh, long term inflation rates should be in or around two percent. They're falling back and they are coming back and. The weapon they're using is obviously using interest rates to reduce inflation. So we won't see as dramatic a reduction in interest rates when we get inflation under control. But the medium to long term prognosis is that interest rates will begin to fall. So but in the meantime, if you're if you're com- if close to coming off a fixed rate mortgage, make sure you search the market and get the most competitive price for you. I heard a very interesting conversation over the weekend about price gouging and the possibility that lots of people are just piggybacking on this talk of inflation and that there's actually a whole lot of price increasing going on that has absolutely nothing to do with inflation whatsoever except, um, you know. And the truth of it is, um, there is more information available to us now as a consumer than ever before. So use that information or do your research or, or speak with people that you trust mm. to make sure that you're getting the best possible price because um, I'm sure there are some elements of that happening across the marketplace uh, in, in certain sectors. It's just to be aware of it uh, and, uh, and and to do your research. Really. Okay, you need to keep the eyes open. And always when you're dealing with the banks, so uh, Irish banks making a lot of money, Jerry. This is fascinating. Um, Una. I, I, I'm absolutely fascinated by this. So Irish banks are, in in one sense, the poster boys and girls of Europe. So I'm talking about our two pillar banks, Bank of Ireland and AIB. We've seen growth in terms of their profitability just far outreach any other banks across Europe in the last 12 months. Their share price has reflected that to a point and, and in some cases I think it's Bank of Ireland their share price is up north of 50%. AIB it's up maybe close uh, uh, in, in the year up uh, up closer to 
90 uh, percent um but it's about understanding how irish banks are currently so profitable what are they doing and there's a couple of there's a couple of key things i think here we need to look back into the past in the recent past i mean we need to look at now and we need to maybe take one eye on the future because one of the things that you look at across the, the, the markets, Una, is what are analysts saying and who's buying what and why aren't they buying or investing in Irish banks and where's the fear? So if we look at the now, Irish banks, um, any one of us, I would hazard a guess, could do what our Irish banking system are currently doing and that's making lots of money by holding lots of money on deposit at low rates on the way in with the European Central Bank and they're creating income or profit on the spread purely because interest rates have continued to rise. So it's been an absolutely brilliant time for Irish banks and in fairness that's part of the reason why they haven't fully passed on the mortgage rate increases because they haven't needed to. So. That's a good news story, but, right? But could I just ask you about that? How can they get away with not passing it on on the deposit front? And yes, they mightn't have passed it on as much as they could have when it comes to, to lending. But but still, there's there's an inequity there, isn't there? Uh, well, absolutely. And, and, and I suppose the key fundamental, uh, and economists will tell us, perhaps we'll get in, into the detail more than I'm going to suggest here, but the key fundamental is it's all about... Um, the market and about choice and so uh, the banks will say well these are our rates and if you don't like it you can go somewhere else and But that's the problem because there's, there there's aren't so little, many places yeah. that we can go and especially with Ulster Bank that exodus it leaves them with a lot of power let's face it. And, and the truth is the big challenger uh, or challengers on the wings they're not even on the wings anymore because they're entering centre stage I think are the fintechs such as Revolut so they are the big challengers moving in because people of a certain age perhaps your age and younger Una, 22, definitely not you. definitely not my age <laughs> but um, are embracing the fact that we don't need a retail high street bank we just need a card or we need an online presence uh, and we need something that's safe and secure such as Revolut rather than the traditional type of banking and so when we look at the present and we look at the success of our Irish banks and how well they're doing, it's because of the movement in interest rates primarily. So it's nothing about strategy or strategic thinking at the top in these banks. And then the second point I would make as to why analysts are wary of Irish banks is you take a look back in our recent history and you look back at the chaos that was mm. the Celtic Tiger era that was perpetuated by the Irish banks that hasn't been forgotten and then you look at perhaps uh, with one eye on the near future uh, the political concerns that international analysts might have as to the next administration in this jurisdiction and as to what that might mean from a banking perspective. Mm. That's less of an issue, I think, um, but, but it's certainly a feature in terms of why analysts are not suggesting that Irish banks are a good buy at the moment, even though they have been phenomenally successful. Okay, jury, stay with me. Carlo Kilkenny, KCLR. Welcome back. I'm here with Jerry Farrell of Castleview Financial Services, giving out about the banks. We'll, we'll, we'll move on from that. But Jerry, I suppose you could forgive your average punter like myself for thinking we bail out the banks when they need to be bailed out, but we don't benefit when the profits are 
exceptionally high, especially when you compare it to other banks uh, across Europe. And we just don't seem to get the, the benefits that we could be getting, one might think. And then it's all when interest rates are rising. So you ask no questions. You just look at your mortgage going up. But that's me having a little rant. I'll think of my pension, which you're going to help me with right now. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, um, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, any functioning society needs a functioning banking system. And, and so that's where the bailout came from. And the fact that we had the uh, uh, the Troika step in back in, in, in 2011, I think it was, or 2012, to help bail us out, meant that we lost control of uh, how we managed things, but we got things managed and uh, better sorted quicker than we had done in the previous 10 years, I would suggest. Mm-hmm. Okay, pensions. Yeah, this is a really interesting one um, and we always come back to pensions, but pensions are going to become, I think, Una, uh, just like in the last uh, general election, they're going to become quite a topical issue for most people uh, as we face into the local and, and perhaps more importantly, the general election. So what's happened in the last few days, the Minister for Social Protection has kicked the can down the road by about 12 months uh, on uh, on beginning the phased introduction of what we call the new total contributions rule for pensions. And this is for qualifying for the full state contributory pension. And changes here are going to impact many, many thousands of people. And so those changes that are planned and that were signed off in 2012 as part of a bailout deal for Ireland uh, have been kicked down the can by a further uh, 12 months or so into January 2025 I think uh, the, the phase in was meant to be from 2024 and what I mean by that for anybody listening is the whole idea was it, the, your PRSI contribution over your whole working life was meant to be based on your total contributions um, rather than on an averaging rule which is what we currently have and that would most likely mean that most people in the future would not reach the full state contributory entitlement level which is currently about 265 euro a week uh, and so once we phase out the uh, the um, averaging uh, piece and we fully introduce the total contributions piece which is going to be by uh, at this stage by 2035 you will see uh, many people moved from the fully qualifying for the entire state contributory pension. Okay, and so do you think that's a bit of an electoral piece, the fact that it's been pushed down the road? Is that what you're saying? It feels like that. We have a pensions roadmap of reform that was launched in 2015 or 2016. There are many facets of that, including public sector pensions, which we haven't even begun to grapple with yet. Uh, And some of them are more contentious than others. And when we start to look at like for instance a few years back we were looking at changing the pension retirement age from 66 out to 68 that's now not happening uh, we're talking about the total contributions approach that's quite controversial and we're also talking about um, increasing or the minister has said increase the need for increasing PRSI contributions to pay for the fact that we're not changing the age but that again has been kicked out okay so we kick the problems into the middle distance. <laughs> That's what we do best. Uh, listen, I suppose, I, I feel like I say this, we, we, we will wait and see what happens. But I feel like I say that to a lot of things that uh, you have to say, Jerry. But it is a, a bit of a waiting game sometimes, isn't it? Absolutely. Just to see what's going to happen. But as always, you are a font of knowledge. Jerry Farrell of Castleview Financial Services. Thank you so much for coming in to us today. And we will chat to you next week. Don't go anywhere because we have lots still to come in the next hour. We'll be talking about grief. We'll be talking about water safety. And we'll be meeting... Liam O'Brien, who is going to be a Green candidate in the local elections next year.
KCL or live with thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre Carlo with a fantastic range of shops, food outlets and a state-of-the-art IMC cinema. See fairgreen.ie. Ashing, thank you so much. I was about to comment on the weather again, Ashing, and then I thought I need to take myself aside. I'm doing that very cliched weather small talk. I'm getting a bit obsessed with it. <laughs> to be honest, I feel like we're all the same at the moment because that rain out there, it's just like, it's a good talking point really, isn't it? It's so changeable though yeah. to sound like somebody's granny, but it really is. It I, is. I can't keep up. So I'm I'm on, I'm listening carefully and then I just want to talk to you about it. But I think you have better things to be doing. <laughs> Ashling, thank you so much. We're going to be talking later about water and politics possible, I suppose, issues around water safety. But um, there is a water outage to report on the Golf Links Road and New Park Kilkenny until 2pm today. There are also interruptions to water supply on West Street Callan until 3pm. So just to be aware of that, we had a text in about Irish banks being criminal because if you don't have enough money to pay a direct debit, they don't pay it, but they charge you for unpaid ones. Then if you're overdrawn, uh, they will still take out the bank charges and then when cash comes in, it's OK to be overdrawn if it's their charges, but not otherwise. That was a text in um, about banks and we'll listen more on that next week, I suppose. Now, I read an article in The Times last week reporting that the loss of a parent is harder for boys than girls. And I thought immediately of Cathy Stritch, who runs Grief Ireland and is host of the podcast Family Flowers Only. So Cathy joins me now to discuss that article. Good morning, Cathy. Good morning, Una. How are you? I'm not too bad. Now, the reason that you came straight to mind, I think, might become obvious if people knew your own story um, when it came to grief. Would you mind sharing a little bit of that with us this morning? Sure, yeah. So um, I suppose my first um, loss was my brother-in-law, my sister's husband, who um, lost his life in an accident. Um, his mum had actually died uh, the two days before that, and they were just preparing for a funeral. And then he um, had an accident himself, and he died a couple of days later. Um, and then my sister, his wife, uh, she had been diagnosed with a brain tumour the year before at the age of 33. Um, and, you know, the, at his first anniversary, she kind of got sick and went... Uh, downhill again and she died as well um a little over 15 months after her husband had died um so you know significant huge loss a young couple and they had two uh, small children as well at that time um so yeah so that was kind of my first uh blow with grief and it was it was a big one, wasn't it? Because I know you had been very supportive of your sister Elaine uh, throughout her illness and her own grief. And then the fact that she had two little boys, which we're going to come on to in a moment. Like for me, that would suggest that your own grief maybe got pushed away a little bit, Cathy. Was that the case? Yeah, it can be, absolutely. I mean, it's it's not like you don't understand or feel what's going on. Of course you do. You're you're thrown into grief straight away. But um, you don't have a lot of space or time to do that, to grieve and, and sit with it. You have to really, you know, there's a lot of worry when there's two children um, and no parents left. You know, it's, it became a, a family thing, really. Um, there was a lot of us on both sides. Um but you you take on that worry um, internally yourself, yeah. So really, to me, a lot of the time it was watching them, feeling, you know, heartbreak for them, seeing certain scenarios that they would have, communions and birthdays and Mother's Days, Father's Days, all those things um, are so significant. So I suppose you're kind of taking on 
their grief as well because sometimes they were too little to understand so you know you were kind of grieving for them you know and how old were the boys again Kathy when Elaine died so when her mom died they would have been um, Jason would have been uh, six and Adam would have been uh, uh, what was he he was four six and four very very young I mean even the four year old's understanding probably wasn't 100% 100% the six year old I would imagine yes yeah. but I mean that that's why I wanted to talk to you specifically Cathy because articles like the one that the Times ran last week probably don't sit very well with you where they claim that the outcomes of those who have lost a parent at a young age are quite negative in some instances in terms of substance abuse in terms of hospitalisation and then they go on mm. to say that um, the figures are even higher. So, for example, men are 70% more likely to be admitted to hospital on mental health grounds and the equivalent figure for women was 52%. Now, this was a Finnish study, but I just was interested in your comment on those findings. I mean, you know, I just had a brief look at the article, so it's it's hard to argue against it, really, because it was quite high uh, figures and... Um, I suppose is factual, but you know, in in a real sense, in a day to day life, when you look at it, um, yeah, I, it, it's not a nice thing to read that you know the outcomes are so poor. I suppose, particularly for boys. I mean, the headline says that um, it's far worse for a boy to lose, uh, I think, his mother or a parent than a girl. Well, you know, to me, that kind of dismisses uh, a girl. I mean, what is it not hard for a girl? Also, of mm. course, it is. Um, but yeah, you know, I suppose there are factors for if somebody who's lost a parent at a young age. I mean, we understand nowadays how important that nurturing uh, is from a parent. And it can't really be replaced. I suppose children have an absolute need for uh, love and warmth and comfort, which they do get and children will get when a parent passes. But, you know, there's no replacing a mother or a father, I suppose, in terms of... Uh, financial things like that I suppose we, we understand that um, if if we you know get stuck later on in life a mother or a father you know things like mortgage they can help out not always obviously but I suppose that's where those figures are coming from is perhaps it said that you know boys and girls would have struggles financial struggles and things like that you don't have that support of a, of a parent when they pass and, you know, oftentimes they have to make their own way in the world, which is difficult. Mm. So, you know, a study is a study, but um, that's not to say that they can't thrive. And I suppose there's a lot of mental health support. The other thing I would say is that it's the lack of conversation around grief that is probably going to um, be detrimental to people who have lost a parent, particularly at a young age. If there's not any conversation or support in the community, then they will struggle with their mental health. You know, it's up to us to be able to help them through life. Well, I was going to ask you that actually, how you think we in Ireland specifically are when it comes to talking about somebody else's grief. And then also, I suppose, in in a very particular case of a child losing a parent and, and both parents, very sadly, in the case of your nephews, how does your average stranger or teacher or priest or whomever how do they deal with that and and what effect might that have on the boys I know that's a very loaded question but maybe we'll start with the how do you think we are with grief in Ireland um I think we're doing better um I've often heard the phrase that the Irish are great at funerals but not so good after (laughs) um 
yeah, there's, you know, there is a long way to go. I think it's becoming much better. People are talking about it. You know, they're talking about it online. I don't know about in, in real life, though. Um, I see a lot of people speaking openly about their grief. But um, in, in real life, it can be quite silent. You know, there's not a lot of uh, people feeling comfortable enough to bring up topics such as suicide or child loss and things like that it's it's very quiet miscarriage it's, there's just a silence around it there is no talking about it so that tells me that you know we've a long way to go um and you know i i, I bring it back to something so simple as if somebody gets engaged we will all crowd around them and tell us all about it and what happened but if somebody dies very close to someone that's a huge part of their life and we'll just sit there and, and not speak about it and I just think that that's wrong we have to be able to talk about it to support people you know and have you experienced an awkwardness if you mention Elaine or if if the boys mention her have you noticed people not being comfortable with that personally um Yes and no, not so much. I suppose I talk openly to a lot of The thing about it is I'm quite a talker, so I will say it and I'll be comfortable to say it. But were I not able to bring it up, I don't know if people would ever bring it up to me. And do you the know? boys mention their parents? Do they ask you questions? How are they with talking Yeah, of course, through? yeah. Yeah, they would. Um, I do find it's difficult for them on a day-to-day basis. Um, Sometimes people bring it up when they don't want to. You know, they're still quite young. You'll have people with their heads tilted to the side and Mm. ooing and eyeing over them. And it's hard for them. I've seen them at weddings and people saying, I knew your dad and someone else. I knew your mom. I, you know, and it's hard for them, really. Especially when they're children, I feel like they might need be okay with hearing that when they're older. But um, it's hard for them because it's just at that awkward age anyway. One is about to turn a teenager, so no matter what you say to them, they're kind of awkward. But yeah, absolutely, they talk about their mom and dad a lot. Yeah. But I suppose going back to that wedding scenario, if somebody asks you, oh, or or mentions your parent, like I think for a young person you might be caught unawares and you might just have a moment of upset yeah. that you didn't expect because I'm sure their grief changes as as they grow and, and, and become more aware, I suppose, of what they've lost. Yeah, um, you know, in a scenario like that, when someone brings it up when they're not, you know, I feel fiercely protective then. I feel um, bad for them when maybe they don't want to talk about it, you know. Um but you know we we know that people have good intentions and and things like that and Mm. I feel like they will want to hear those stories when they're older particularly the younger because he doesn't remember either parent really Um, but yeah it's it's just so hard for them and for you as well Cathy and all your family I want to come to Grief Ireland tell me a little bit about it and why you set it up yeah so I uh, it was kind of in the thick of lockdown I decided to just set up an Instagram page called Grief Ireland. Um, Really, I had no plans for it other than to just have a place where I could speak openly on grief and uh, I suppose not be questioned if I wanted to put it on a different page that, you know. uh, So I just set up a sole page for it. I did also feel like there wasn't any page or place you know, we saw lots of pages on makeup and fashion, and but there was no dedicated place to talk about grief in general. So, when I did set it up, I um, I found I was blown away by the response. You know, it was just growing and growing and growing, and the inbox was full of people telling their stories. Um, you know, of loss and how on their own that they felt, and that there was nowhere to go, and and 
they found it so hard um, and you know it really helps them I started to do live videos with people who would talk about their loss and so you know we we're all doing the lives when we we're stuck at home um, and then there was that huge element of people who lost someone during COVID who couldn't even have a funeral or see anybody and I just really felt for those people how isolated they must be and so it's kind of a page to have a community to give them a voice you know, we do a lot of, of things in real life now where we meet up on grief retreats um, and it's just become so helpful to people and I'm, I'm delighted that it is helping them. Well, it sounds like it's really taken off and I wonder, you have created that community. I wonder, is the fact that you're not sharing your grief with anybody else helpful? Because maybe if, if in the case of your own family, you, you, you talk about Elaine, you talk about Pa, but sometimes maybe it's t- nice to take that conversation to somebody who doesn't feel their own grief for their own loss. Yeah, for sure. You know, that's why the retreats in particular are brilliant because you get a space to go and just talk to someone who doesn't know you. And exactly as you said, sometimes when you're talking within your own family unit, you have to share that grief mm. because you know it's their sister too or it's their daughter you know within a family unit um so oftentimes it's better to go outside of that but it is uh you can find a lot of solace and comfort in somebody who has also lost a child or who has also lost a husband or you know etc um yeah so it is hard to kind of find that uh, you know that support and that support is also to be found on your podcast is Family Flowers Only. I'm wondering, Cathy, how do you navigate those conversations? Because I, I'm assuming that everyone's ability to talk and recount their own story with grief, that can differ hugely, I'm imagining. Do you find that challenging to navigate that? Yeah, um, it can be. Uh, I suppose anyone who puts themselves forward for something like that is probably willing to open up and talk um but it is you know person by person you kind of have to um you know you have to facilitate that and 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 feel for what they're ready i always make sure that they know you know you only have to talk about what you want to talk about you know um and each conversation is so unique and so different and each person has a different opinion and that's why it's really important to hear other people's opinions and and what you know you might not relate to one person but the next person could hit the nail on the head when it comes to how you feel you know Okay. Well, Cathy, I think the conversations you've opened up are really doing great work for people. It gives them a great outlet to discuss grief and process grief, grief rather. And thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and your uh, platform, I suppose, your platforms with us this morning. Thanks a million, Una. No problem. This song you is very often... Just to breathe easy and to stay alive. We get so many requests in for that song, Breathe Easy by Stephanie Rainey. And I wanted to play it this morning and I wanted to dedicate it to anyone who is suffering a loss, particularly the loss of a parent. And I'm sure that's many of you this morning. We'll be back right after this. KCL or live with thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre Carlo with a fantastic range of shops, food outlets and a state-of-the-art IMC cinema. See fairgreen.ie Carlo, Kilkenny, KCLR Welcome back to KCLR Live. Now I'm delighted to be joined in studio by Liam O'Brien who's been announced as a Green candidate for the local elections next year. Liam, good morning, how are you? Good morning, Una, thank you. 
Uh, good to meet you. I had John Cahalin last uh, week and he was asked why people before profits. I'm going to ask you the same question, but it's a little bit more interesting because you were a Labour councillor. So why not Labour and why the Greens? Yeah, so look, um, I was a proud member of the Labour Party for 20 years, 19, uh, so 99 until 2019. I suppose I come from a working class background, so I always view view things through a kind of a social democratic lens and I felt the Labour Party was right home for me, a progressive party and I actually was proud to be a public representative for the Labour Party for 10 years between 2005-2015 so that was with the abolition of the Town Council 2015 so at that point I kind of stood back from politics for a few years, I wanted to kind of concentrate on my career and I suppose in that time I became more and more conscious of environmental issues, it had always been uh, conscious of environmental issues but it became more and more so and I suppose I just became increasingly alarmed at, at the environmental crisis and looking at w- one report after another from the UN and scientists making it very very clear that uh, carbon emissions are causing global warming and that is going to lead to serious problems with biodiversity loss and it became clear to me that you know the climate crisis, biodiversity crisis were the biggest issues facing us, us all locally, nationally, obviously globally and I suppose the whole issue was crystallised for me at the last local elections when I looked at the ballot paper and really I wanted to vote Green and there was no v- Green candidate there. And shortly after that local elections, I rescinded my membership of the Labour Party. I still see myself as bringing those social democratic values forward into the Green Party. But uh, then I joined the Green Party in 2019. I've been very active in it since. And I suppose I just really want to make a difference. Um, I don't, I'm not the type of person that sits back and kind of just, ex- ex- you know, accepts everything is going to be a catastrophic ne- inevitability. I want to make a positive impact. I want to change things for the better for, for our country. And I suppose looking at my kids, I want to ensure that I've, I've given them, them and their grandchildren a fighting chance of a, of a sustainable future. Okay, now we might talk the specifics of your, I suppose, platform, what you are claiming that you would like to tackle in just a moment. But I wonder, do you think the Green Party have performed in government? Do you want to make a difference? The Greens are in government. Are they making a difference? Oh, absolutely. They've had numerous initiatives and and successful policies in government. If you look at public transport, for example, reduction in fares, which has resulted in a big increase in people using public transport, 25% reduction in childcare fees, uh, huge investment in in, uh, sustainable energy. Uh, They've reduced, got rid of VAT on solar panels, uh, good grants for solar panels, right across the board to have been uh, have been successful in government. And I suppose look at the context. We're coming in with a start in government during the pandemic, uh, war in Europe, and still. Uh, there is full employment in the country. Public finances are in a very uh, good good place. So I think, you know, we have made our contribution to a successful government. Uh, many people thought, oh, Green Party and government, God, the sky is going to fall in. It hasn't. Uh, I'm very proud to say that we live in a progressive country. Uh, and look, there's plenty of things that can improve. We know that. Uh, but certainly a Green Party and government has been good for the country and will continue to be so. One of the criticisms that I've heard actually all over this week levelled at your own Pauline O'Reilly was that the two to one condition for public transport over roads projects that has been was a condition of, of the Greens entering government, obviously, that that in fact has resulted in delays rolling out road um, projects to to a very debilitating extent. What would your comment be to that? Um, look, that was part of the programme for government, two-to-one ratio for public transport over roads. And 
look, last year the, the report came out from the EPA, or sorry, this year, on, on, on emissions, carbon emissions for last year. Overall, there was a reduction of 2.3%, and that is positive. I mean, it needs to be more if we're going to reach 50% reduction on the 2018 levels by 2030, but it is, you know, it's positive news. Now, the only sector that actually raised its carbon emissions was transport. So, you know, each sector has its, its, its targets. Transport exceeded its tra- carbon emissions increase. So if we're serious about tackling the climate issue, we have to be serious about tackling transport as, 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 as a major emitter. But do you think those targets are realistic? If, if you are serious about tackling it, should the targets be a little bit more realistic and a little bit more attainable? Because one of the other things I heard Pauline say, like yourself, was, look, we've come so far. But if we're still so far from the target, is the target the problem? Well, the target can't be the problem because we've had the hottest June in record, followed by the wettest July in record. We are seeing this uh, is the hottest year in record. All our meteorological records are being are being broken. Uh, Southern Europe is is burning. Uh, you know, we see wildfires all over the world, and we have uh, uh, floods in other parts of the world. So we have to, if we're serious about provi- about being sustainable, we have to abide by these targets. I mean, scientists are saying now that is it is going to be very hard to stay within one point five percent increase in 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 uh, temperatures. And if we allow that to slide further, I mean, we're just building up more and more problems for future generations. We have a responsibility to tackle these problems now. Uh, we can't let it slide any further. You know, if we had started this on this path 20 years ago, it it would be the the, the the demands on us now would be far less severe. But we are where we are. We can't resign from our responsibilities. OK, when you were announced as candidate, Liam, you made reference to what you would be focusing on. And it seems that enhancing the local area, improving on the vacancy and urban dereliction um, right across uh, Carlo will be I suppose, a major priority for you. Could you speak more specifically about what you would plan on tackling, first and foremost, if you're elected? Well, yeah, look, it's it's a blight on our towns and villages right across the country. We can see it in South Carlo. There's too much uh, vacancy, and that's led to dereliction and vacancy is, is there for a prolonged period. And 2021, I organised a public meeting in Carlo on urban dereliction and, and vacancy. And two weeks after that, Carlo County Council announced that they were going to appoint a vacancy officer. And I think that's essential for all local areas. Since then, an audit has been carried out in, in towns and villages across Carlo on the level of vacancy. So I think, you know, when you apply pressure and when you raise the issue, you'll get success. So it would be an absolute priority for me to stay on that issue. And I will be following up, looking for exact details, uh, what has happened to this audit, uh, has it been a, comp- a comprehensive enough audit, uh, I will be raising it continually. Uh, because I think, you know, we need to ensure that our towns and villages do return to being uh, vibrant social economic centres. And what would be the next step? So once you've, I suppose, done your homework and established the areas of, of particular concern, what would the next step be on a practical level once you're in there in office? Perhaps? Yeah, I think you just have to continue to engage. Ask where is the engagement going with the owners? Uh, I would, I suppose, as a Green Party and government, it is a priority for, for us to to uh, uh, to uh, get, get town cent- centres up and running again. Uh, and it's all about policies as well. For example, Stephen Matthews, Green Party TD, he's a private member's bill going through the doll at the moment, and it would look at uh, looking at restrictions, the difficulties that are there 
with with uh, upgrading uh, derelict properties. There are still restrictions there, and they have to get through the system. So it's about having Green Party representation at all levels, at local level and at national level, because it is a priority for us. I think it's far better for, for our, our rural Ireland if town centres and villages are vibrant rather than having a dispersed population, you know? You've already been a councillor, obviously, Liam, and you weren't put off by the experience, which is great to see. I had, when John Cal was in here, I asked him the question, does he think his co-option will be an advantage to him next year? Do you think that it will be? And I'm going to ask you as well, do you think your previous experience will be an advantage to you when it comes to polling next year? Oh, it will. Look, I mean... Uh, I think the second time I ran, I doubled my vote. So that's a good uh, testament kind of work I had done. I have a track record in improving local facilities uh, in Bagnestown. And uh, so I would bring that forward. I think, uh, you know, it's an advantage in, in kind of knowing the structures in Carter County Council, knowing the people. Uh, and look, I'm a community environmental activist. Uh, I engage with people constantly. So, you know, I, I think all that experience will, will, will come to bear on, on being, uh, you know, a successful representative for the people right across South Carroll, Bagnestown, Borough, St. Mullins, Lachlan Bridge, Fenna, right across the whole area. And do you think John has an advantage, John Cahill being in there at the moment? Ah, we'll see. You know, <laughs> let's see how he goes. Best of luck to him. OK. You know. Fair enough. Listen, I want to take you to Ballyhale for a moment. You retired just, was it last year as principal? That's right, yeah. Of Scolarig and Ballyhale, yes. OK, so I, how's retirement going first? Let me ask you that. Yeah, look, um, I suppose, I, 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 unfortunately, I developed a bit of a health issue in the latter years of my principalship I, I, with chronic pain, and that's why I had to retire early. But um, so thankfully now I'm managing that more successfully now, so certainly I've devoted myself now to being to our community work, community and, and, and environmental activism. I'm enjoying that. I suppose I've been promoted to head cook in the house as well, so I have I two hungry lads at home that need to be fed, <laughs> as, as well as uh, 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 my wife, obviously. I hope you're deserving of the title and that you're, 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 you're producing some good stuff. The reason I wanted to ask you about your, your principalship and your, your time in Belly Hill specifically was, I wondered, had you noticed, because you were up close and, and personal with a body of young people across a long period of time, Yes. when it comes to environmental problems and actions, solutions, I suppose. Did you notice a difference in, in how young people, I suppose, think about the environment and behave toward it? Or do you think that's a bit of tokenism, like our green schools flag, that it's just tick a box, get a flag, off we go? Look, you know, look, young people are no different to the rest of us. Like, there's that spectrum there of people who would be more concerned about it and less concerned about it. You know, it, it's a very, for, for some young people, a, co- a very significant point, or, you know, a cohort of young people now, it really is a stressing issue, you know. And uh, look, going forward, they, they seem can, can seem quite overwhelmed with it. So all the small actions that we do are important because you can get overwhelmed by this issue. So everything that we do is important. We, ha- we must have a sense of ownership of, of, of the whole uh, challenge. And I think that giving young people that that sense of, of, of opportunity to be able to do something about it, whether it be recycling, green schools, I mean, recycling is very, very important. It's, you know, we have to move towards a circular economy uh, and just providing, uh, raising awareness around it and an understanding of, of you know, carbon, carbon emissions with everything we do. We have to do it. So, look. But I suppose what I'm asking, Liam, is, is it working? Because let's go to the recycling, for example. Yeah. 
in your experience, I've no doubt, but that you were doing a little bit of bin rooting. You strike me as that type of a guy. Right. Were you finding, you know, recycling stuff in the in the regular bin and vice versa? Was that a battle that that you were winning or that we're winning generally in 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 getting young people? All of us. I mean, I'm just yeah. taking them as an example because you were in a school. Yes. But are we winning the battle to raise awareness around making that second nature that you don't? mess up a very simple task, really, which is recycling. Well, I think we are. I mean, you know, the recycling levels are increasing all the time. But I think we go one step further. I think we have to make it create a financial incentive uh, for people to, uh, you know, you, you get a deposit back on your bottle. And that, again, is, is, uh, is coming true in legislation with the Green Party. And I think that will bring it that one step further. You know, I think you have to financially incentivize people as well as much as possible. Okay. Uh, there's a text in here asking, what do you think of the British pre- the British Prime Minister's announcement that they're going to give out 100 licences for drilling gas and oil? I don't know if you can speak on behalf of the Greens, but yeah. what would you think of that? Oh, it's unbelievable. It's a completely retrograde step. You know, we can't, we know what's causing carbon emissions and global warming. So in countries, in, you know, in liberal democracies like, like Ireland, like the UK, we have to show leadership. So when we're sitting down and talking to China and Russia and so on and saying, look, you have to put, close your, your, coal, your coal stations, they'll turn around and say, well, hold on a sec. You're opening new oil wells in the North Sea. So don't talk to us about, about climate uh, awareness and taking responsibility. I think it's completely retrograde. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of the mainstream parties uh, kind of over time have said, you know, we'll take on the green agenda. And that's the prime example of where they haven't. If you want, if you want progress in this area, you know, you have to put green people in, in, in position, representative positions in local local council and, and in, in your national parliaments. OK, and you are one such candidate and you, of course, will be running in the uh, local elections next year. So we wish you luck with your campaign and all that you have to do between now and then. It's been lovely to meet you, Liam, and get a flavour of who you are this morning. Thanks very much, Una. KCL or live with thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre Carlo with a fantastic range of shops, food outlets, and a state of the art IMC cinema. See fairgreen.ie. Carlo, Kilkenny, KCLR. Welcome back. Now, Liam and I got chatting in the break there about some initiatives and I thought, don't go just yet. Maybe we'll share these with the listeners. So, Liam, off you go. Yeah, so I'm involved in a couple, just to show people that you can make a difference. So I'm involved with a group of people, uh, Lockdown Vision Program Group, Town. Uh, Carra Tidy Towns, County Carra Environmental Network, we have spent the last two years removing an invasive species on the barrow, Himalayan balsam. And uh, look, it's, 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 it's a tough work sometimes, but it's a great project and we are preserving the barrow for the future. Uh, a second initiative, I think, it just shows again what success you can have. As Treasurer of Bagnestown AFC, uh, we, we, I, I was uh, instrumental in getting solar panels installed on Clubhouse Roof. Now, normally we get a, a, a bi-monthly bill of €220. Euro. The last two bills, in fact, not only has it, it hasn't cost us anything, we were in credit to the ESB for about €50. Euro. So we are a carbon-neutral club. We are saving money, uh, thanks to Leader for giving us a 90% grant for the project. So these are the things you can do locally to make an impact. Uh, you, know, I, you know, for example, with the Barrow, I can't impact what's happening in the Amazon, but I can do something, I can do something about the Barrow. So I would you know, encourage everybody to get involved locally and look at ways which where you can have a positive impact on, on, on the climate biodiversity crisis. Okay, and a listener actually brings up a point that might 
also be something that we can do and I'd love to know what you are doing in this regard. They're asking um, about election posters being made from plastic. They're put up all over the countries. Who pays for the posters? They're also highlighting that there's no levy on plastic bottles and buying minerals in cans are actually more expensive. What do you say to either of those points? The election posters, levy on plastic bottles. Yeah, again, uh, I credit Malcolm Noonan, our TD and Minister for this. He's trying to put in legislation which will mean that you can't put posters and lampposts anymore. There will be dedicated areas in towns and villages across the country to have this kind of system in some countries in Europe where you can only put posters in those areas. I really hope that the other political parties support it. It would be uh, we get rid of all of those posters off of off le- poles, get but rid of all that waste and all that expense. Okay, but it's still not solving the problem. So we're still going to have the posters which are made from plastic. So no, it, yeah, it might be a billboard. You know, you might have a billboard where only on that billboard you can put up posters. But it would be far, far less. You're talking maybe five uh, percent of, of what was previously used. But do you find it surprising? Is it is it the pressure that you have to do this? But do you find it surprising that the Greens? do actually use those posters? Uh, look, not all candidates do. Malcolm didn't in the last general election. He got he got elected. Um, Will you be using them? Look, I hope the legislation is successful. I really do. I, and I if prefer, it's not? I prefer not to use them, but um, to give myself a fighting chance against other candidates uh, to raise my profile in areas that, you know, I'm per- perhaps less well known in, uh, I may have to use them. Okay. And what about the, the plastic bottle levy? Any comment uh, on that? Well, as I said, uh, uh, so... Green Party have a, a proposal it's actually law it's going to come in once to get the logistic sorted out where you will get a, a return on your plastic bottle deposit so I think that's that's uh, you know making sure that this, like, the plastic will be used again uh, and, and, and there is a kind of a levy on it Okay Liam O'Brien thank you so much for all your thoughts this morning. Now, the EPA published a water quality and public supplies report. It was published yesterday and I'm joined on the line by Cormac McGarald to discuss it. Good morning, Cormac. Good morning, Una. Now, you're an inspector with the EPA and what I gather from reading the report is that they have you have identified at-risk supplies that require improvements to safeguard public health. That's quite worrying. Is there reason for worry? Well, Una, I suppose uh, to take it back to the report itself, we just launched our 2022 report on the quality of water in public drinking water supplies in Ireland. Um, The good news is that water quality is very high. Over 99.7% of samples are compliant with the standards. So that's a very high level. 99% of anything is good. So 99.7%. And there's there's samples of good news in there, for example, in a brand new wastewater treatment plant built in Cork City, at a cost of 40 million so that's that's quite good better drinking water for over almost 100,000 people as you say there are issues and we highlight those issues um so for example there is an increase in those supplies where you say they're at risk um an increase in number of the supplies and people that are on that water so that is an issue that needs to be dealt with by Ishka Aaron and we call that out and we highlight that in particular and um, also there's, there's other issues for example such as uh, disinfection byproducts in water and that that has increased in terms of the amount of people exposed to that and also the risk from lead in our water there is still a residual risk there of lead and uh, that needs to be dealt with um, in terms of removal of lead pipes in the network so there are some of the high level issues that we do call out but I suppose I would always bring people back to the fact that on on a, on a wide uh, level our water quality is very high at 
But I suppose we were just looking through the figures that were published and from our calculations, there were about 28,085 people across Kilkenny and Carlow that would appear or that would be affected by the remedial action list, which identifies the Mm. at-risk supplies. I guess my question is, how risky is the at-risk and is it something that should cause us a lot of concern or is it just you being er erring on the side of caution when you highlight that? Well, I suppose um, it's a fair question to ask. And in terms of the at-risk, I would say there are enough at-risk that this requires to be fixed and it requires a lot of money to be put into it to build new plants, for example. So for your Kilkenny listeners, the Raidstown plant that supplies water around Kilkenny, that is going to be decommissioned um, and there is work ongoing at the moment to do that. Um, and one of the particular issues there is in relation to, for example, those disinfection byproducts I mentioned. But in terms of the risk, if there's a direct risk to consumers, um, there would be either a boil water notice issued or a water restriction notice issued. And those do get issued around the country, you know, where in consultation with the HSE it's decided, no, uh, there, is a, there is a kind of clear and immediate risk to people's health from drinking this water. So that's the kind of immediate risk that you should be really worried about. This is more of a kind of long-term risk, you know, where we want these supplies to be sorted out uh, it, it, you know, it's in order for water still to be supplied, but it has to be monitored and uh, plants have to be put in place to build new treatment plants or to improve the treatment that's already there. So that, I suppose, is that remedial action list. It's those plants that do need to be fixed. And uh, as you mentioned, there are some in the Kilkenny, um, the Kilkenny Carlow area. So it's it's it sounds to me like a gentle nod that down the line problems might occur if measures aren't put in place right now. Would that be a fair way to sum it up? Well, maybe not so gentle. I mean, there are, there are risks. You know, I don't want to, I'm not going to say that there are none there. I mean, we do call it a, a list of at-risk supplies. So there are risks um, potentially, as you say, down the line uh, and risks that are significant enough to spend a lot of money sorting this out. And it can often cause disruption to people as well, you know, when supplies are moved over, things like that. So these are issues that do need to be sorted out and they are, I suppose, at, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, there are a lot of issues all around the country and sometimes what can happen is there's just too much information. So what we do with this remedial action list is to publish it, to point out to Ishka Aaron, these are the most important sites that you need to sort out in the medium to long term. Um, and that's what we've done in this case. So, um, yes, long term, there there is some risk, but it's manageable, but the issues do need to be sorted out. And I suppose that's the role of the EPA, is to call this out and year on year to say, look, there are still sites on the remedial action list. But having said that, even though the number has gone up, there are sites that get sorted. Every year there are sites that there's work done or work is completed and it can be taken off the, the at-risk um, list and now it's effectively sorted. So I suppose even though the number is going up, there is lots of work being done in the background and lots of issues are being resolved, but we're finding other issues as well, which I suppose really comes back to a generation, uh, 25, 30 years of underinvestment as a country in our water supply um, and that's coming home to roost over these years and it's going to take a number of years to fix it. Cormac, if somebody has an appetite for reading the report, could you direct them as to where they might find it, please? Well, we've issued a number of tweets uh, on Twitter, on our various social media networks. If you go onto the front page of the EPA website, there is a news area there that that will bring you to the report as well. And I would say there's a lot of good information there. There are maps 
um, you know, you can look up and see if one of your supplies is, for example, on that list. Um, you can see the water quality. There's a bit more detail on that, you know, to give you some comfort that our water quality is actually, on the whole, as a nation, our water quality is very good. And I would be very confident in terms of, you know, people drinking drinking their tap water and I myself as well, you know. So, yeah, I would direct them to go and have a look at that um, and, uh, uh, and, and check it out. OK, well, we'll say cheers to that. Cormac McGarrett of the Environmental Protection Agency, thank you for your time this morning. KCL or live with thanks to Fairgreen Shopping Centre Carlo with a fantastic range of shops, food outlets and a state-of-the-art IMC cinema. See fairgreen.ie Carlo, Kilkenny, KCLR. When I was young I fell in love with used to old hands, man, that was enough Then we grew up, started to touch Used to kiss underneath the light on the back of the bus Welcome back. Now we've got a number of messages in, but actually I wanted to say because somebody texted in to ask about Cathy Stritch, who was on talking about grief. They were asking about the retreats that she mentioned and you can find all information about them on griefireland.com. And I do think that there's one coming up on... Saturday, September the 30th. So if you want more information on that, you can look on griefireland.com. And actually, I was reading some of the testimonials and they were absolutely beautiful. So if that interests you, I think that would be a good a good site to check out. Uh, there was a few texts in about climate change and the... the Green candidate we were speaking to, Liam O'Brien. So one texter says, Ireland is doing well as regards climate change. Farmers playing a big part with space for nature, etc. Another texter, not so positive, is asking why the planet was warm and wet millions of years ago with cold-blooded giant reptiles called dinosaurs roaming the planet. Nobody was drilling oil or gas or mining coal. And he was ask- he's asking what caused global warming back then. And his theory is that it's just the natural cycle of the planet. I also have birthday wishes for Rita Dowling of the Kilkenny Road, Castlecomer. A very happy birthday to you. And that comes in from Anne. And I'm joined in studio by the lovely Ethna. Ethna, how are you doing? I'm good. Thank you, Na. Do you have a winner for us, by the way? I of do our mystery indeed. Sound? Yeah. Um, so Malcolm Clark um, made several guesses yesterday and one of them was correct. So the mystery sound was a Dyson vacuum being emptied. So um, Malcolm was in touch to say it was a vacuum cleaner being emptied. So Malcolm, congratulations. You've won €500 Euro and I'll be giving you a call after the show and we will organise that for you. And we will have a new mystery sound start on Tuesday because we've got the bank holiday this again uh, with thanks to La Hearts ID Buzz. So we'll be back next week on Tuesday to tune in and we'll start fresh. And congrats to Malcolm. I have to say they sound so different when you haven't got a context, don't they? Yeah, they're very, it's very challenging. The different sounds are very challenging. But do you know what interested me this morning just with the, we were saying, you know, the sound was house related and I saw um, an interesting thing coming through about our uh, a drawer in our house the drawer the dodgy drawer that, that dodgy drawer that everybody has and apparently you know it's the it's the drawer in my case I have a room where everything you know I throw everything in and I close the door and run away really quickly but I think most of us have a drawer in the kitchen that's the everything drawer um, I have one of those too but it's got sellotape 
new toothbrushes, new toothbrushes. It's got measuring tapes. It's got you know that drawer where you just and are they thrown in? in? Why do we do that? Because I don't know. Then you just, can't find anything. Yeah, but you kind of always know it's it's in the drawer. I and know you can have a good old rummage. But anyway, if you have one of those drawers, good news is that if you have tech in it, it could be worth up to four thousand euro. So you know when you're rummaging around looking for safety pins or thumbtacks or blue tack or any of those things that you find in that drawer. Have a look, see what's so in there. So what kind of things would, be, would bring me to the 4,000 euros the old, I badly need? The old tech, the old phones, maybe an old Kindle. Do you know, I have lo- I have phones probably in there since my first phone in like 1987 or so. But do they have value? <laughs> like the old Nokias and all those old-fashioned yeah, ones? Yeah, apparently they do. And apparently if you have a good rummage and you get in touch with an electrical store, they might be able to, um, to do something with that old tech. And look, if not... You've got We Ireland Recycling Days coming up locally, so you can dispose of it that way. Um, look at your cables and all of that. But yeah, apparently if you have a rummage and you never know. I mean, I know my kids were away, scrubbed the house at the weekend and I made about two euro and 90 cent for my troubles. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did anybody claim it when they came back? If I put it in my pocket, Una, and I said nothing to anybody. <laughs> and I think you deserve that. <laughs> Thank you and so more. much. I'm going to buy a 99 with that on my way home from work. Today. Much deserved. Well, listen, I want to thank you for all your work on the show as always. Etna and to thank the lovely Tara who is just isn't she such a lovely comforting in studio presence weekday mornings from 10 till 12 this is KCLR live